Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he, and a wife, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. My favorite contemporary author is a man named N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is not just a prolific author, he's a speaker, he's a professor, and the joke is that N.T. Wright can write faster than you can read. These are the books of his in my office. Those are just the books about the Bible. Then he has a whole other series of commentaries. He's written a commentary on every book in the New Testament along with his own translation of the New Testament, N.T. Wright writes faster than you can read indeed. And he is not just my favorite contemporary author, he's 
really challenged me intellectually. He's someone who's helped me understand my faith more clearly. And while I don't agree with everything he says, he is certainly a, a wonderful sparring partner with which to grapple with big ideas about God and Jesus and faith. And so I did something a few weeks ago. I, I took a flyer, I like to say. When you take a flyer, you do something that you don't think is going to work out, but you might as well take a shot anyway. And I emailed N.T. Wright to invite him to be a part of a staff training that we'll be doing a little later in this spring. I expected to get no response, but lo and behold, in my inbox, the next day was a response actually from Professor Wright at St. Andrews University in Scotland. And he said he couldn't come this year, but I could feel free to check back for another year. And I thought, I just got an email from this intellectual giant, my favorite author. And so I, I said, I'm going to email him right back and tell him, hey, Mr. NT, I don't need to bother you with all these details. If there's anyone that helps you organize things like this, if there's anyone that helps you schedule things like this, I would be happy to work with that person. I don't want to keep bothering you. And then I get this email back from N.T. Wright. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, he's thanking me. He's grateful for me. I don't have a secretary, so this email will normally find me. Good wishes. Good wishes. Thank you, Tom. Good wishes from Tom Wright. He wants me to keep emailing him. So a few days later, a friend of mine actually sent me uh, an invitation. And I'd never actually heard N.T. Wright speak uh, in public before. I've read a lot of his books. I've listened to some podcasts. But I've never actually seen him in person. And so my friend sent me this. He was speaking in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I thought, I am not going to miss this. I said, Nina, let's go. Let's make a night out of it. And we drove up to Harrisonburg, Virginia. And we got in the auditorium early so we could get some good seats. And I was sitting there for a few minutes. And the man in front of me turned around and started talking to me. And it turned out he was one of the pastors in Harrisonburg that had organized this Event. He was on the board of the organization hosting this event. I told him what I did, and I was a pastor down in Williamsburg, Virginia, and we had some great conversation. About 10 minutes later, N.T. Wright walks in the room, and this pastor turns to me and says, hey, I, I, I need to go. I got, we have to stop talking. I, I've got to go make sure that Tom gets, gets settled in the room. I said, me with? Take, take, take me with you, sir. <laughs> And, and he's kind of like, I just met you. I'm like, I'm not, go I'm, you know, don't leave me here, man. Come on, bring me with you. So he brings me, brings me with him and he goes and makes sure that N.T. Wright has everything he needs. And, and then he goes to introduce me. He's like, Tom, this is, now, now who did you say you were? What are you doing here? This is, and I said, I'm Travis. I'm a pastor in Williamsburg, Virginia. We actually just emailed and I invited you to this thing, and so you know who I am. You're, I'm the guy that you said you didn't have a, a secretary, and that I could, I could email you anytime I wanted. And he looked at me and he said, I'd really like a secretary. <laughs> and I thought, is that an invitation? <laughs> and in that moment, you came this close to losing your pastor. If it wasn't for Nina standing right beside me, uh, making sure I remembered not only my responsibilities here at the chapel, but also with our family, I was about to bolt for Scotland in that moment. So here's me and Tom uh, declining his gracious invitation to be his secretary. But it made me think when he said, I'd really like one, and I thought, is that an invitation, Tom? It brought me to this question. 
What invitation are you longing for this Christmas? Is there an invitation that you're longing for? Is there something you'd like to hear from someone? Maybe it's an invitation to reconciliation for your relationships. Maybe it's an invitation into belonging more deeply in your family. Maybe you're looking for an invitation of hope into your distress, an invitation of, from chaos into, uh, to bring you, uh, an invitation from peace into your chaos. Maybe it's an invitation of fulfillment into the longings you have, of joy into the sadness in your life. Maybe you're looking for an invitation from patience to move into your anxiety or an invitation of community into the midst of loneliness. What invitation are you longing to receive this Christmas? I want you to have one in your mind as I preach from Luke chapter one here. Because whatever invitation you are longing for this Christmas, Luke chapter one verses one through 23 reveals God's greater invitation and will show us how to respond. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You see, Luke writes in the original language one long introductory sentence as the grand entryway into his gospel language. And our English translation here has done a nice job preserving that one long sentence in English. Notice those are not periods in the Bible, those are commas, because this is Luke's one long sentence to help us all see that something has happened. Something has been accomplished. Something was seen. And this something was so intriguing to Luke that he decided he must follow it closely and write it down so that others might have certainty about this something. Something's been accomplished, Luke says. And I need to tell you what it is. Luke chapter 1 verse 5 gives us a clue as to what it is. I'm just going to read the first part of Luke 1 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. And right there when the original readers of Luke's gospel read that, they would recognize the days of Herod were a dark time. This is what I learned about Herod this week. From 37 BC until his death, Herod ruled as king of the Jews, a reign marked by his total loyalty to Rome. You see, he was placed as king over God's people, yet he ruled over God's people with total loyalty to a foreign, occupying, oppressive empire named Rome. The Jews longed for them to have a king that would liberate them from oppression. And they got Herod, handpicked by Caesar himself. And Herod ruled them with an iron fist marked by total loyalty to Rome. This was a time of Roman occupation. 
And because of the Roman occupation, God's people began to wonder if this was an extension of the exile. We heard the choir sing earlier, O come, O come, Emmanuel, to this exile This exile, ransom your people, Israel, from this long and lonely exile. You see, God's people hundreds of years before have been exiled from the land that God had promised them to foreign lands like Babylon and Assyria. And though they had returned to reoccupy the land that God had promised them, this foreign rule, these dark days of Herod, made them question if they were once again in exile, even though they were in God's Land, Roman occupation, extended exile, which led to people crying out for freedom and redemption. They may have even prayed what the prophets prayed. Like we read in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. Isaiah writes, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah and the prophets, they prayed, God, just rip open the sky And come down, we're we're done with this exile. We need redemption. And then we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, these words which served as our call to worship this morning. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, the heavens were torn open and the angels announced that God had come down. You see, God knew that light in a dark exile would not be sparked from within that territory occupied by sin and death would not be liberated by a human army, and that the creation itself could only be redeemed by the creator himself. So God embarked on an expedition, an expedition not across land and sea, but time and space from realm to realm, heaven to earth, so that in the words of the prophet Isaiah, that people walking in darkness might see a great light. Christmas is God's expedition toward us. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is God's expedition toward us. But Herod is only the context for the story. I said I only read the very first part of Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Let me read the rest. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both 
were advanced in years. You see, this story is not actually about Herod. This story is about two ordinary people whom God invites to be a part of his expedition, Bethlehem. Let me tell you this story of Zechariah. We learn that Zechariah is a priest and he's on duty at the temple. There were so many priests at the time. They did not have to be at the temple all of the time, just at certain appointed times of the year. And we learn in the story that Zechariah is selected by casting lots to be the one to go in and burn incense in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Casting lots was similar, would be similar to us rolling dice to try to figure out what God is up to. They would, they would cast these lots, they would roll these dice, and whoever the lot landed on, they believed that was God's selection in that moment. And Zechariah is select, selected to go into the sanctuary. As I said, there were many priests at the time, so that there was likely that a priest would only go into this sanctuary one time in his entire life. And we learn in the story that Zechariah is advanced in years. He may have been getting to the point in his life where he thought, I'm never going to make it in. I'm never going to see inside the temple. I'm never going to know what the sanctuary of our God looks like. Now this sanctuary of God in the temple was not the Holy of Holies. That was only entered one time a year by the high priest, but it was the room just before that. Maybe you might call it the antechamber. The antechamber to the Holy of Holies, the closest you could ever get to God's presence as an ordinary person, not being the high priest. And so Zechariah enters. Imagine what's going through his mind. Are the hairs on the back of his neck standing up just so, wondering what it's going to look like, what he might See, is his heart beating a little faster, wondering what God might do in this moment as he offers this gift of incense up to God's presence. And he goes in and he begins offering the incense and he's startled. He sees something or might even say someone and he knows he's the only person that came into this sanctuary and he realizes it's an angel and he is terrified. And you go, how would Luke know all of this, that Luke's telling us this story? Well, you get this interesting detail in the story. Where was the angel? Luke tells us the angel was standing to the right of the altar of incense. Remember earlier, we read that Luke said he, he uh, talked to eyewitnesses. Luke probably interviewed Zechariah and said, tell me what you saw. Tell me what it was like. There is no way you would have that detail in the story if Luke hadn't interviewed eyewitnesses, hadn't talked to Zechariah. What did you see? What did he say? And he's filled with this great fear as this angel tells him that he will have a son. And this son will go before God's, or a God's appointed Messiah will go before to prepare God's people to receive the, the Messiah, to receive the coming king of God. Zechariah is invited into the expedition that God is taking to Bethlehem. He's invited to pre- help prepare God's way on God's journey. It's an invitation from God to Zechariah for Zechariah 
to join him. I have a friend, his name is Ben Connor, and he served here in Williamsburg as the Young Life Area Director for a long time, grew up here at the chapel, and now he's a seminary professor at Western Seminary in Holland, Michigan, and he has a certificate program in theology and disability. He studies how people with different kinds of abilities learn uh, faith best, how people with different kinds of abilities are formed in their faith. He told me this story of a group of people with all kinds of different abilities uh, learning about the gospel. And some of the, some of the people re- wanted to respond and wanted to place their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross. And so Ben had them write notes to describe what they were doing so they could have a a physical reminder of that spiritual experience, to have that note, that public profession like we have with baptism, a public profession of an inner transformation. And so Ben had them write these notes, and one girl named Heather wrote a note that totally transformed the way Ben saw the gospel and God's invitation. She wrote this, God, thank you for bringing me into your life. Thank you for bringing me into your life, God. You see, so often we're so busy inviting God into our lives. So often we're so busy accepting Jesus as our Savior into my heart. But Heather said, God, thank me for bringing me into your life. After reflecting on this moment, uh, Ben wrote this. The idea is Jesus is inviting us into his life, not us inviting him into our lives. You see, Christmas is God's expedition toward us and God's invitation to us. It's God's invitation to us to be a part of his life and a part of what he is doing in this world. My good friend and possible future employer, Tom Wright, put it like this. The story is about much more than Zechariah's joy at having a son at last, or Elizabeth's exaltation in being freed from the scorn of the mothers in the village. It is about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes But the needs, hopes, and fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story. Precisely because of who Israel's God is, the God of lavish, self-giving love, as Luke will tell us in so many ways throughout his gospel. When this God acts on the large scale, he takes care of smaller human concerns as well. The drama which now takes center stage is truly the story of God the world, and every ordinary human being who has ever lived in it. That's how Luke intends it to be. This is the story of God, the world, and every human being that has ever lived in it. Because Christmas is God's expedition toward us and God's invitation to us. And so the question is, how will we respond to God's invitation this Christmas? How might we respond? Well, I believe Zechariah's response is fairly instructive for us in how we might respond to God's invitation this Christmas. So let's take a moment 
and look at the lesson of Zechariah's response. It's in verse 18 of our story, right after the angel has invited Zechariah to join in the mission of God, Zechariah says this. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Translation, Zechariah says, I need more than an invitation, Mr. Angel, sir. I need insight. I need information. I need security. I need safety. I need a warranty that this is all going to pan out the way you say it's going to pan out. And so here's what happens for Zechariah. Verse 19, and the, angel, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. He's forced to be silent. He can't speak he comes out of the temple and there's this crowd that gathers every day to pray as the priest offers this incense and he just begins waving his hands and they know something has happened but he can't tell them about it. How, how much he must have longed to tell them what God was doing. How much he must have desired to tell them what God had done in his life and he couldn't, he was silent. And you learn a little later in chapter one of Luke that not only can he not speak, but he's deaf too, that when people go to communicate with him at the end of Luke chapter one, around verse 62, it says they had to make signs to him. So there are no words on his mouth and there is no sound in his ears for nine months as his wife carries this child. And right as the child is born, there's a discrepancy over what to name the child. Elizabeth, his wife, says we should name him John because that's what the angel said. Somehow Zechariah communicated that to her. And everyone's going, there's no John in your family. You should name him Zechariah. It's the firstborn son. And so Zechariah sort of flails his arms and we read this in 63 and 64 of chapter one. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose loosed and he spoke blessing God. You see, Zechariah moves from questioning God to blessing God. And the question is, what, what transpired in that time? What moved Zechariah from questioning God to blessing God? And here it is. And here's the lesson. Silence precedes surrender. Silence precedes surrender. God forces him to go quiet. You're not going to say anything. You're not going to hear anything. You're just going to listen for a while, Zechariah. And that silence moves him from questioning God to blessing God. Silence leads to surrender. 
Elizabeth actually applied this lesson in her life on her own. If you look at verses 24 and 25 of our story, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Elizabeth takes note of Zechariah's silence and says, I better get some silence myself if I'm going to surrender to God's will for my life and especially for my child. But our culture really struggles with silence, doesn't it? We really struggle with silence, don't we? The day after Thanksgiving, I decided to take another flyer with my whole family, four children, wife, parents, an aunt was slipped in there as well. The entire family, day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, let's go to Tyson's Corner. We were, yeah, yeah, see, I hear the groans out there. We were spending Thanksgiving in Northern Virginia, and I thought, why not? This, this is our only shot to go be a part of the chaos. So there we were, the entire family at Tyson's Corner. It was a madhouse. And then I saw this one store, and they had this little sign out in front of the store, Experience Zen Den. And in the midst of all the chaos, they said, Welcome to our oasis of calm. Enjoy complimentary fair trade refreshments all weekend. And I thought, do I spend some time in the Zen Den? Do I just enjoy some complimentary fair trade refreshments to, to get into an oasis of calmness? And I turned around to look what was going on outside that. It was just chaos, chaos. I said, I, I want to, I can get some calm later. Let me just see some more chaos. So I kept walking around. I saw this sign. That Black Friday feeling. <laughs> I wanted the Black Friday feeling. I thought, what do, I, well, I didn't even, first of all, I didn't even know what the Black Friday feeling was, but I thought, whatever it is, I want to feel what that Black Friday feeling is. So I kept watching the sign. Eventually it changed and said, save big on better sound. So to get that Black Friday feeling, I've got to save big on better sound. No silence in the Zen Den for me. I'm ready to save big on more sound, better sound. I want to hear something. And then I kept walking. I was, my destination was to get to the food court. I saw this, get six for the price of two. You know, get six what? Six pairs of socks for the price of two? Okay, no. Get six watches. What are you going to do with six watches? How much time do you need to tell our world needs better sound, needs more stuff. And so I finally made my way up to the, the food court and I saw some people that really had that Black Friday feeling. This was them. <laughs> you see, too many of us are spiritually passed out due to lack of silence. Let me say that again. Too many of us are spiritually passed out due to lack of silence. We're not listening enough. We're not listening for God's still small voice. We're not listening to our spouse. We're not listening to our small group. We're not listening to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not listening to God's word. And the question I have is, will we seek silence this Advent season? Will we seek it? Because I believe that silence leads to surrender. That's what Zechariah's story has taught us. And so if you want to seek some silence this Advent season, I've got two suggestions. Sabbath weekly 
and Scripture daily. Sabbath weekly and Scripture daily. That, that God's Word teaches us in the Ten Commandments that we are to honor the Sabbath. We are to take a day of rest, a day of intentional reflection and listening. And it even tells us why in the book of Exodus. It says, for in six days God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. And I think, do I have more energy than God? If God rested, if God Sabbath, if God spent time in silence and stillness, why wouldn't I? There are four Sundays in the Advent season, and maybe you could take these four Sundays and make them a Sabbath rest. If it's not Sunday, maybe it could be Saturday. For me, it's Monday. But to take four days over four weeks and just listen more closely. If you want a real practical tip on this, this is not like a hard and fast rule, but you're going, I'm so bad at this. Our culture is so bad at this. If you want a rule, nothing with an on button. If it has an on button, don't use it and your Sabbath will go up. Your listening will go up. And second, scripture daily, that we can actually listen for God and his voice in his word every day. And we've developed uh, an Advent reading plan that is good for everyone in the chapel family, even people with uh, children in their families. This will work for anyone in the chapel family. And there are hard copies out at the information desk and at the front desk all week. Or you can text uh, WCC Advent to 41411. And you can not just Sabbath weekly, but you can scripture daily and get into God's word this Advent season. I'd like to have a brief pastoral moment before I end this sermon. I'm going to be gone the next two weeks and uh, helping a couple of other churches. I'm going to be speaking at the Tabernacle Church of Norfolk, which is uh, our mother church. We were planted out of their ministry at the Tabernacle Church of Norfolk and helping them uh, with some difficult things going on in their congregation next week. And I'll be speaking at Spring Branch Community Church, where my dad's a pastor, the following week. And so I wanted to just, before I, I have this two-week absence from our worship time together. I just wanted to have a brief pastoral moment because this year we have an annual focus entitled Called to Explore. We are, we are called to explore by Jesus in Acts 1.8 to go out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And, and we've got a, a wonderful Next 40 fund to, to help us move everyone together in this, in this direction that Jesus is calling his church and it's all wonderful, but there's a danger in it. The danger is that we can see it as one more thing to punch into the schedule, one more thing on the to-do list. And because it's good and it's what Jesus has asked us to do, we can, we can tend to just go, I've got to cram it in and make it happen. And we need to get there, everyone together as a congregation, and we need to sacrifice to get there, everyone together as a congregation. But I will tell you, there is one thing we cannot sacrifice as we get there, everyone together, and that's silence. We cannot add it as one more thing to our church schedule and avoid the truth that we learned earlier this year, that abiding leads to the adventure that Jesus calls us on, that silence will lead to our surrender for this adventure that Jesus is calling us on because silence did not merely lead to surrender in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life we read in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 he was oppressed and he was afflicted 
Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 26. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make, Jesus? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. You see, in silence, Jesus surrendered so that we could be invited into the very life of God. And so what invitation are you longing for this Christmas? And I will say there is a greater invitation offered, even greater than an invitation to be N.T. Wright's secretary. For Christmas is God's expedition toward us and God's invitation to us. An expedition toward us that becomes an invitation into his life and his mission, the life and mission of the one true God who was made known in all his fullness when his expedition reached Bethlehem and Jesus Christ was born. Let us respond to this invitation with silence. For silence leads to surrender.